Well, thank you. It is so great to join you wherever you might be this morning. And I would just invite you to find a Bible or open a Bible app to turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 in your Old Testament. And if you uh, were uh, looking on the Facebook feed as we began, there was a link also to our outline with the progression of what we'll be studying this morning. Feel free to open that or print that off as well. I don't know if you're disappointed this Easter season because certain family traditions that have been a part of your life are canceled. Uh, Family dinner, maybe an Easter egg hunt, a Good Friday service. I know that right now, as a church family, we would normally be uh, enjoying our Palm Sunday breakfast. But whatever you're disappointed about, I I trust that God will replace that in some special way with something memorable, something long-lasting. And it could just be that that, uh, because you could not go to church during this Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter season, that maybe God will speak to you in a personal way and powerfully about some of the most important things in in your life. And that's what we want to think about this morning from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is an amazing prophecy about Jesus written about 700 years before Jesus. And it addresses the most important issue for each of us personally. Because it addresses how we can know for sure that one moment after we die, we will be in heaven forever with God. So really what it does is it addresses what is our ultimate and greatest fear. What happens after we die? So Isaiah 53 will address that for us today, and then we will complete our study of this next week, Easter Sunday. But So I've asked you to turn to Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, but for several minutes I'd like to point our attention to something that happened not 700 years before Christ, but actually Two years, probably, after Christ died, arose, and ascended back to heaven. It's found in Acts chapter 8, but I will be putting those uh, verses on the screen uh, for you. It's about two men. A man named Philip, who's a godly Christian man from Jerusalem, and a foreigner called here an Ethiopian. Uh, He's an Ethiopian, uh, according to the New Testament, but in that day, what was called Ethiopia is probably in modern-day Sudan. So it's some 1,500 miles, about, away from Jerusalem. And uh, an angel is sent by God to tell Philip, to tell this man who is riding in a chariot, to tell him something about the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're going to jump into that story. But think about this man. He's a foreigner. He has come to Jerusalem to worship the true God as he somehow had heard that the true God was the God of Israel. And so he was a sincere man. He was a religious man. I'm sure he was a good man. In many ways, this man reminds me of people I've gotten to know throughout the last couple of decades here. Uh, I, I don't know that there's that many people who are true atheists in some of these counties, Ozaki and Washington and Sheboygan. I've met so many people who believe there is a God and who in some way want to know or honor him. But sometimes I wonder if, like this Ethiopian, 
they are missing, people are missing the one final piece of truth that would give them the absolute assurance that they would be in heaven forever, one moment after they die. Because that's what this man needed, and that's why God sent Philip to go talk to this man, leaving Jerusalem, it says, on the road to Gaza, and here's what takes place. It says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot, And heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. So it's the same uh, passage of scripture we'll find that we have open in front of us today. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So if you can picture this scene, they are uh, riding in a chariot. I don't think the chariot is is running full speed like a Ben-Hur movie or something. It's just... Clip-clopping along, it's probably a couple of month journey. There's at least now three men in the chariot. There's Philip, who's been, been invited. There's this Ethiopian uh, man who is a treasury official. He's an important man from Ethiopia. And I assume there's someone driving the chariot. Now we see exactly what he was reading. This is the passage that the eunuch or the um, Ethiopian was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. One thing is clear here. This is describing somebody was dying. He was deprived of justice. He's like a sheep being slaughtered. His life was taken from him. And so this man knows he's reading something about somebody dying. Now, these two verses are actually part of our study next week when we study the uh, actual death of Jesus and his resurrection. But he's got this open and he wonders, who is this man? So we keep reading. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus is exactly what we want to see today in the book of Isaiah in the chapter 53. So whether it was uh, two years after Jesus or whether we are here 2,000 years after Jesus, the issue is the same. We need to know the good news about Jesus. So whether you grew up in a church or not, whether you're part of this church or part of another church, we need to understand the good news about Jesus, and that is to answer the question, why did he die? What was accomplished by Jesus on the cross? If you're looking at the outline I've provided, I've picked out two key words. The first, one out of the first three verses and one out of the second three verses. They are the words despised, looking at that in the first three verses, and then the word pierced, or you perhaps have the word wounded in your Bible, uh, for the second three verses. Next week we'll continue on where we look at some of those other, the last part of this chapter. Verse 1 then. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
this is talking about Jesus. And it's a little bit puzzling at first to understand. Let's say in verse 1, who has believed our report? To whom has the Lord's arm been revealed? Basically, the prophet is asking this. Who would have guessed that God's mighty arm of salvation would come through this person? Because it seems that there is a progression in chapter 53. Verses 1 and 2 describe the humanity, really the childhood of Jesus as he grew up. So who would have guessed that this this Jewish child would be the one through whom God would display his most mighty arm about the most important thing in the world? Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot or like a root out of dry ground, just pointing to the normal boyhood of Jesus. He he, He grew up like a young plant, right? And it says there was nothing remarkable about his humanity, visually at least. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We wouldn't have guessed it. He didn't look like a king. He wasn't surrounded by a king. He didn't grow up in a home that looked like a king. Very common Jewish home there in Nazareth. You know, as you're seeing uh, different pieces of Christian art, Generally, Jesus, whatever age, seems to be pictured with that halo a lot of times, right? Or uh, if it's maybe Sunday school material, you see him and he's, he's, he tends to be taller than everybody else and this long flowing hair. And I think, frankly, he looks a little bit more um, European, or, European or, or American or almost like an actor in a movie sometimes. But probably he was an average height, maybe five, six, seven, Jewish man, dark hair. He would not have been remarkable if you had seen him. So that describes his youth, not remarkable. Verse 3 now, where we find this key word despised, is is where we uh, see a description, it seems, of the Crucial three and a half years of public ministry. So if you're looking in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the Gospels we call them, the description of Jesus' life covers about three and a half years. This is a description in, 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 prophetically in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He went through the tough issues of life as we do. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The key word is despised, used twice here. It refers to the fact that Jesus was looked down on and hated. The fact that he was rejected by the nation of Israel. Now, indeed, he was uh, intriguing and appealing to many of the common people. They heard his wisdom as he spoke God's word. They were thrilled by the power of his miracles. Uh, Some 5,000 were fed miraculously when he broke the, the bread on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But this is referring to how the nation of Israel, the Jewish leadership, and specifically the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, how they received him. And so we see this in John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So, so they rejected him. One example of that, and there's many in the, in the Gospels, would be Matthew 12. 
After he had uh, cast a demon out of a demon-possessed man, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Which would be a reference to the, the Messiah that Israel was waiting for. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it can only be by Beelzebub, the prince of demon, that this fellow drives out demons. So the religious leaders were actually accusing him of being evil or satanic. And he's the son of God. As you um, read the gospel accounts, and I would encourage you to read the gospels about Jesus, because when you read about Jesus on earth, you are discovering what God is really like. Um, Read Matthew. If you were uh, part of our Just Read um, that Pastor Seth has led the last couple of weeks, you have maybe read along with him the book of Matthew and discovered the life of Christ through that. Or read through the Gospel of John. And as you read about Jesus, you discover what God is like. And you would discover this. You would discover that, that Jesus is gracious towards those who are weak, to those who are sinners. For example, the woman caught in adultery. Read sometime chapter 8 of John, the first part. While he's gracious towards sinners and those who acknowledge their weakness, he, is, he confronts those who are proud and arrogant, which is usually the Jewish religious leadership. We get a view of what God is like, and you know, in this time of suffering around the world, um, sometimes people reach out to God, sometimes they become cynical about God and wonder, you know, why would, why would he allow this, this to happen? When we see Jesus in the Gospels, we, though, we learn a couple of things about how God would view a situation like this, because we find from the life of Jesus that he hates disease. More than we do. He hates disease. He cared about people who were suffering and who were ill. And in fact, he healed many. But we'd also discover this. He didn't heal everyone. Because we find out that the reason Jesus came was not to solve the short-term problem of physical illness and disease. He came to solve the ultimate problem of death. And the cause of the ultimate problem of death is the spiritual disease of sin. And 100% of us are infected with that. That's why he came to address the root of the problem. So this passage has taught us that he grew up unremarkably in appearance. But as we know, he suddenly, during those three and a half years, became remarkable because he was doing miracles. He was doing things that only God could do. And the Pharisees picked up on it and knew that he was claiming to be God. And that's exactly what he was claiming to be. Because only as God could he do that which he came to do. Only because Jesus was God would the cross become the pivot point of all of human history. Only because he was God is the news about Jesus and his death Good news. If Jesus was not God, then what happened on the cross was simply a travesty of justice that an innocent man died. But if Jesus really was God, as proven by his miracles, then he could address our greatest fear, the fear of death, and address the greatest problem, the problem of sin. And that is now the focus of verses 4 
5 and 6. So we go from that key word despised, describing how people treated him, to now understanding the word pierced. What was happening on the cross? Verses 4, 5, and 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was trust crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, that's a word for sin, of us all. If, if you think through those three verses, there are probably seven statements describing why Christ died. The reason he died is that he was bearing the punishment that we deserved for our sins. Took our infirmities, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. His punishment, our punishment was upon him. By his wounds were healed. The iniquity was laid on Christ. Let's take them one at a time. Surely he took up or bore our infirmities. It's a word that uh, can and often does refer to illnesses, probably referring here as a, as a picture of our spiritual sickness. That is the, that is the theme of, of each of these lines. He bore the punishment for our sin. Now, illness is, of course, a result of sin. Uh, illness, death, Injury, tragedy is all a part of living in a sinful world. And someday that's exactly what Christ came to fix. And so we have the description in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21 verse 4, of how in heaven there will be no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. And for all those reasons there will be no fear. Because death has been conquered when we see the result of what Christ did. And the reason none of those things are present in heaven is because there's no sin in heaven. Why? Because Christ has conquered the problem of sin. He took up our infirmities. Second line, he carried our sorrows. It, it's, it pictures Jesus on the cross as bearing a burden, and the burden is the guilt of our sin. But what did people think was happening Second half of verse 4. Yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. The, uh, the writer is speaking as if he's an Israelite, a, a Jew, watching the scene of the cross. And what would they have thought was happening on the cross? Because if, if you just are, are picturing the scene, there's three men on crosses. Two of them you know are criminals. And so what would you assume about the third man? He must be a criminal too. Evidently, he's getting something that he's got coming to him. And, you know, so often that is our human response when we see someone suffering. Sadly, it's kind of our default to kind of say, well, they must have deserved it. And, you know, we are, we are kind of that judgmental human sense of justice so many times. So it looked like Jesus was suffering for his own sin, perhaps. But there's a huge pivot point in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgression. So if you thought he was suffering for his own sin, drop that. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So 
It was actually the very opposite that was actually happen, happening. Jesus was punished for our sins. That's what was really going on. And if we understand, especially what's happening in verse 5, what was happening on the cross, we would understand why Philip could tell that Ethiopian in the chariot, this is the good news. This is the missing piece that you have to understand for the fear of death to be taken away. This answers the question why Jesus died. He died so that your sin and mine would already be punished. Your sin, my sin, has already been punished. That may be the piece that you've missed, no matter where you grew up, how religious, what church, how good you've been. Maybe you haven't fully understood or embraced this issue. Why did Jesus have to die? Because you see, the dominant view that religions of all flavors, denominations of all kinds, seem to have in common is that somehow we have to be good enough to qualify for heaven. We all kind of know we do some bad stuff, so we got to compensate for that somehow. And so somehow we have to qualify by being good enough. But let me ask you this. This is, this is a crucial question. If we could earn heaven by being good enough, why did Christ have to die? What was the point of all of that? But it's been answered here in verse 5. It's been answered throughout the New Testament. He died to be punished for our sins. And so we find this same issue clearly addressed in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who had no sin, picture Jesus on the cross, to become sin for us. He was becoming sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus had no sin, but he became sin. God made that happen. So ask yourself the question, who punished Jesus on the cross? God the Father did. God the Father did. And that's why Jesus on the cross would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in some real sense, God the Father had to turn his face away from himself, God the Son, on the cross because he cannot look upon sin. And Jesus was bearing the weight of all the accumulated guilt, of all the sin of all time was put on him. And God in his holiness was punishing sin. You see, God is holy and he has to punish sin. Just as we'd say a judge is not good if he doesn't punish criminals, God would not be good if he did not punish sin. God is holy. He must punish sin. But God is loving, and he didn't want you and me to suffer that punishment. He wanted you and me to be forever with him in heaven. That tells you the nature of God, both justice and love. And so Jesus became sin for you and me. So if you notice in the verse... He took our sin. What do we get? That we might become the righteousness of God. What a trade. He gets our sin. And we get his righteousness. It's the same thing that we see now in verse 5. Middle of the verse. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So Jesus was punished and we get the peace. He gets the punishment, we get the peace. What a trade. 
By his wounds, we are healed. He gets the woundedness, we get the healing. Now, these are poetically parallel statements. And and again, some Bible readers assume this might be speaking of uh, physical healing. And, and you need to know, God has the power to heal. He does heal according to his will. That's why many people today are rightly praying and asking God for physical healing. And he heals. But I believe the focus here again is still reemphasizing that he was crucified for our spiritual healing and transformation. The reason it was necessary, verse 6, is that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So so now the picture is of a sheep with shepherd, Jesus being the shepherd. We've disobeyed. Our, Our pride, our selfishness, we lie, we get angry, we have addictions, we have secrets, we have regrets, there's things we've said, we've done. We all understand this, I trust. We have gone astray. And and often we think of those things in terms of the impact they've had on our lives, on the maybe ourselves or the people around us. We've made a mess of things. It's affected our relationships and and we wish it could fix this or that. But the biggest problem is not actually the mess we've made with our mistakes, our sin, horizontally. The biggest problem is the vertical problem we have with God because he is holy and we are sinful. And we can't fix that. If we make mistakes around us, we try to fix those relationships and that can be a good thing, but we cannot fix our problem with God. Only God can fix a problem with God. And that's why he sent Jesus, because only Jesus could solve this problem. And that's what happened on the cross. And so the final line of verse 6 says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, that's a word for sin, he has laid on him the sin of us all. He was punished for us. The death of Jesus is the only solution for sin, because only Jesus was sinless. You and I cannot pay for our own sins. You can't pay for mine. I can't pay for yours because sinners can't pay for sin. If I get an oily spot on my, on my shirt, I can't clean an oily spot with an oily rag. It just makes things worse. And so it is also spiritually impossible for us to fix our own sin problem. And so he came and he fixed it for us. So the question becomes this. If we understand why Christ died, that he was paying for our sins, how can we know for sure that our sin personally is paid for and that we will be in heaven one minute after we die? What do we need to know? How do we need to respond? I'd like to to share this in hopefully a simple and clear way. Um, I'd like to share it as the bad news and the good news. The bad news is about us and the good news is is about Jesus Christ. Here's the bad news number one. We are all sinners. As we find here in Isaiah, we've all gone astray, or as Paul puts it in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think about that. The glory of God describes his perfectness. The glory of God describes what it would take for us to qualify for heaven by being good. We have to be perfect. And we all fall short. I like to picture it as several of us standing along the uh, Lake Michigan here in Port Washington. Let's imagine four people standing along the shore. You, me, Kristen Yelich of the Brewers, and one of my two-year-old grandkids. 
Got that picture? Okay. We're all going to be given a baseball and some instructions. And the instructions are to all four of us, throw the baseball over Lake Michigan. We're going to have varying degrees of throws, Christian Yelich versus a two-year-old. But no matter what, we're all going to fall short. That's our description spiritually here in Romans 3.23, that we all fall short. So the worst of us, the best of us, if we were getting to heaven by earning it, nobody can do that. How big of a problem is that? The second part of the bad news is this, that the penalty of sin is death. And we understand that means a spiritual, eternal death. The wages of sin is death. So if we got what we deserved, what we would deserve is eternal punishment, eternal judgment. You know, during this uh, season of global concern, there's a lot of fear. There's obviously economic fears and some of those current day and what you can't do. But if we're really honest, the, the fear that goes deepest is the fear that we all face eventually of death. So it's not even a matter of if we die, it's a matter of when we die because we're all terminal. And I think as we, as we think about death, we begin to think vertically, we begin to think about regrets. And, and if you have some concept of God, you realize... I got a problem. I got a problem. I've got, I've got, I've got regrets and, and because the sin is real, the guilt is real. And so some people try to deal with that by maybe punishing themselves. You know, I, 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 well, I need to be punished because yeah, I, I'm a bad person. Other people take a more optimistic view of themselves and say, well, you know, I need to somehow compensate. And so I've, I've been a really good person. And so I've gone to church, I've jumped through all the hoops, I've, I've given money, I've, I've helped people. Either way, you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to fix our own problem. But we all fall short. And we would all still deserve judgment. Are you ready for some good news? Because that's what Philip told the Ethiopian that day in the chariot. He told him, what did it say? The good news about Jesus. And so here is the good news. The good news is what we've seen in Isaiah 53. Jesus Christ paid for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. The Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. The reality is we could never, ever, ever be good enough to earn eternal life. So God stepped in and sent Jesus Christ who was punished for us. That's why Christ died. And that's the good news. So how do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? What is the step of response that we must have to what he's done? Because he has already completely paid for your sin. How do we need to respond to that? This is the final piece of good news. But I'm sure that man in the chariot needed to know, and maybe, maybe you need to know. And that is that we can have eternal life by placing our faith in Christ alone. John 3.16 puts it together perfectly. For God so loved the world, fill in your name, put your name, God so loved Joe or whoever, that he gave his only son. That is a description of the cross that we have looked at today. Now there is one step that it's this. 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. So there is a response required of you. There's a decision required of each of us. Do you believe in Christ? Well, we have to understand then what does it mean to believe in Christ? We use the word believe in a couple of different ways in the English language. One way we use believe is you believe or you hope something's going to happen. Last week I bought two airline tickets for my wife and I to fly in July, hopefully, to Denver to see our daughter and son-in-law. Fortunately, the airline has this uh, policy that over the next 12 months, if that doesn't work out, we can exchange it for a different ticket. So I could say this. I believe we'll go see our daughter and son-in-law in Denver in July. But you know what I'm thinking. I believe means I hope we're going to. I think there's a chance we might be going to Denver, but we might not. That's not the way John 3.16 or the many other verses in the New Testament mean believe when they say we need to believe in Christ. It's not just a hopeful thing. Let me change the illustration. When this trip to Denver happens, my wife Priscilla and I will get in the plane and we're going to believe in that plane to get us to Denver. That's different, isn't it? Because when we get on that plane... We know that we cannot help get the plane to Denver. And so we're going to sit down and we're going to just trust that plane to take us there. And I'm not going to stand up in the, in the middle of the aisle and kind of, you know, help, help ourselves get to, I can't do that. It'd be silly. I need to believe in the plane. That's what John 3.16, that's what the New Testament means when it says you must put your faith in Christ. You must believe in Christ. And so there is ultimately this question. Let's change this last verse to another one. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace, and grace means undeserved. It is by grace you have been saved, and that means saved from the penalty of your sin. How? Through faith. Faith is the same Word in the Greek language of the New Testament as the word believe. It's from that same form. Through faith, meaning faith in Christ, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So no one in heaven is going to say, whew, I'm here because I deserve to be here. No one's going to say that. They're going to say, I'm here because Christ paid for my sin. So these become the crucial terms It is by faith, and it is not by works. So the crucial question is this. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Is your faith in Christ, or is your faith in your own good works? What are you trusting in to get to heaven? Here's the verse again, and I'd like to share with you what I've often shared in this room that someone shared with me years ago. A little illustration of three circles. C, W, and C plus W. Here's what we mean by that. What are you trusting? It's like, it's like three doors, you know. Pick a door. Pick a circle. What are you trusting in to get to heaven? Is it Christ that he has paid for your sins? Is it Christ? Or is it W, good works? Good works means that which you do. Good works means... Uh, Something religious, something personal, something you you might have been proud of. Is it good works? Or 
would you even say it's Christ plus works? Because a lot of people like to cover all the bases, right? What are you trusting in? Christ, works, or good works plus Christ? What does this passage in Ephesians make clear? We are not saved by works. And that means we also cannot be saved by Christ plus works because really we're saying the cross was irrelevant. I am the deal breaker. It's how good am I? Because the answer of Scripture is that we must put our faith in Christ alone. And that's why it's good news. That's why Philip could say to that man in the chariot that day, you are reading from Isaiah 53 and discovering the good news about Jesus. That you can have eternal life by faith in Christ alone. I would just invite you, if this is something that God has made clear to you through his word today, that you would make a decision today. And in the quietness there in, in your home or wherever you are, I would suggest to you that you would express to God your decision to believe in Christ, to trust in Christ alone. I'm going to put a, a suggested prayer on the screen here that would uh, possibly express. Now, saying these words is no magic formula. It's, does this come from your heart? Dear God, I realize I'm a sinner and I deserve your eternal judgment. This is a humbling step for you to tell God, I realize what I actually deserve is your judgment. And then tell him, I realize that your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to take my penalty for sin. And then he rose again. That's what we'll look at next week. So I realize I'm a sinner. I deserve judgment. But I realize your son, Jesus, took my penalty on the cross. And then here's the decision itself. I am placing my trust, my faith in Jesus Christ alone to forgive my sin. It clears our eternal account. And it gives us eternal life. I'm placing my trust. So you're saying, I realize, it, like, like getting on a plane, I'm, I'm not trusting in me anymore. It's not me plus good works. It's trusting in Christ alone to give me eternal life. And God will come through on his promise. And he will give you eternal life. And you can live the rest of your life without the fear of death. Because you know where you will be one moment after you die. So I don't know, maybe God has given us this season, maybe God's given you this season, where you would face a little more concretely your own personal fears or misunderstandings about the most important thing, the pivot point of history. Why did Christ have to die? If he died and paid for our sin, then your choice is to put your trust in Christ alone. If you have prayed this prayer in sincerity before God, or if you have more questions and you'd like to talk to somebody, I'd encourage you to go to our, our church website, uh, ODBC for Open Door Bible Church, ODBC Port. We're in Port Washington, odbcport.org. And if you go to the main page, there at the bottom, you see a, actually a picture of the, the, uh, the pastors and, and wives. And if you click on that, you'll see a way to email us. And so if you want to uh, email Pastor Seth or Pastor Nate or myself, uh, you have a question, you'd like to talk to somebody, please do that, and we would delight to help answer your questions. And if, and if you've made this decision, we'd like to help you grow from this point on so that, so that you can be growing in your understanding because this is like the introduction, this is like the birthday of a, of a, of a whole new life 
where you live with confidence because you have settled this most important issue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your great love for us, you, you saw our sin, but you would not leave that like that. You loved us so much, you sent Jesus, yourself, your son, in this amazing mystery of the Trinity, you sent your son, and on the cross, you placed all of our sin you punished our sin. Thank you for this incredible and this this only plan that would ever work to take away our guilt and our sin. I pray for anybody who is is hearing this now or or later that that if they have misunderstood or if you've just opened their eyes spiritually to the truth today, that they would understand what you have done and they would place their faith clearly and solely on you alone. And we thank you then that you would receive all the glory for saving us from the penalty of our sin and giving us the confidence of eternal life forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.